Well, welcome to Palm Vista this morning. And as we continue our series in the Gospel of Mark, the series is entitled Incredible. Today we transition from Jesus' great discipleship discourse, which is Mark chapters 8, 9, and 10, to now the narrative of Jesus' passion. Jesus' passion. He will enter Jerusalem today, and his passion will carry him through his crucifixion on the cross for our sins. Jesus' passion is taken up in chapters 11 through 16 of Mark. The majority of that gospel is really given to his passion. And this morning, specifically, we will be studying Mark chapter 11, verses 1 to 25. And the title of this morning's message is, Where God Meets with Man. Where God Meets with Man. It's going to include Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, but the focus is on the temple. Because up to that point, the temple was where God met with man. And there are two questions that drive our text this morning. Again, Mark chapter 11, verses 1 to 25 is our text. And here are the two questions that drive our text. These two questions need to be driving how we look at the text, how we study the text, how we understand the text. Question number one, where does God meet with his people? And question number two, what happens when God's people meet with God. We are God's people in Christ, and we gather together to meet with God. Now, if you're here this morning and and you're not one of God's people, may I appeal to you? First of all, thank you for coming. I don't know everyone here this morning. I thank God for that. There are some guests here. But if you are not one of God's people, you would say, Al, I'm not one of God's people. I'm just here looking. I'm I'm kind of like an observer here. Then my prayer is that through this message, God would speak to your heart and you would be come this morning, one of God's people, by his grace, by his spirit. You're going to hear the gospel. And I pray that you would respond to that gospel by the power of God. But if you are God's people, if you are a member of God's family, then I pray this morning you would hear what goes on when God's people meet with God. So we want to read the text with that in mind. But before we do, I want to pray that God would speak to our hearts. Believer, unbeliever, guest, long-time member, young, old, we want to ask God to just open our hearts to his word and let it move us. Amen? Let's pray. Lord God, I pray that as I open your word and, and teach from Mark chapter 11, that you would open hearts up and eyes would be open to see who you are. Lord, if there are those here this morning who are not your people, that today you would call them and it would be an effectual call. You would give them life and sight to blind eyes and, and hearing to deaf ears and life to dead hearts. And they would see Jesus and you would call them and they would respond. And they would become your people. And for those of us who are your people, Lord, would you encourage us with what it means to meet with you? Lord, encourage your church. Give us power and strength today to honor you. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's read Mark chapter 11, verses 1 to 25. And if we could show the map there on the overhead. Just to orient you here ever so briefly, uh, the little box in the middle is Jerusalem. See where it says Jerusalem down in the bottom? Where it says Judea? That box is a breakout, a um, sort of a detail of that area. We're going to be in the area where it says Bethphage and Bethany and then Jerusalem, all right? So that's where we are in this narrative. Jesus now is entering Jerusalem. We're ultimately a week from now in the text. He will give his life for our sins. 
Mark chapter 11, verse 1. Now when they, the disciples, drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Verse 11. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them, And saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. The focus of Mark's passion narrative is the temple. He is entering Jerusalem. He will die there a week later. But Mark here is focusing on the temple, the place where God had met with man up to that point, the place where God had met with his people, to be specific, up to that point. But that would change. Now that Jesus had come to establish a new place for God to meet with his people, no longer through the blood of animals being sacrificed in that temple, but now through the blood of Jesus to be sacrificed on Calvary for the atonement of God's people's sin. This now would be the place where God meets with his people. Point one, where God meets 
with his people. Jesus begins the narrative in verse 1 in Bethany. Bethany is about two miles away from Jerusalem. Just think about the Chick-fil-A on 57th Avenue. That would be Bethany, and we would walk from Bethany here to the church, all right? Does that sound good? They're closed today, so don't start thinking about food, okay? They then walked to the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives was about 300 feet above the actual city of Jerusalem, which itself was about 2,800 feet above sea level. But it towered over the city. And as they were standing there, Jesus then directs his disciples exactly what to do because Jesus did not walk into Jerusalem as a victim. Jesus walked into Jerusalem as a willing sacrifice. He was sovereign over every detail. He told them where to get the colt, where to untie it, where to take it. He was in control. He knew exactly what he was doing. And his disciples obeyed him and they did that. People are crying, Hosanna. It's cloaked in mystery in Mark. I mean, it's, we're not really sure whether the people knew what they were saying. And remember, Jesus often in Mark says, don't tell anybody who I am because they didn't understand Messiah the way they should. They would after the resurrection from the dead. But it delivers us now, this narrative, in in verse 11 to the temple. Look at verse 11. Let's pick up the, the narrative there. And he, Jesus, entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And look what he did there. He had looked around at everything. As it was already late, he went out to Bethany. Went out to Bethany. And if you show the second map, Jesus enters the city through all of that shouting, all those people saying Hosanna, who a week later would be saying crucify him. He wasn't swayed by that. He knew exactly why he came. And he came and he walked into that temple area. And I could just imagine it's late, the sun's going down, and he just stood there in this massive 35-acre temple mount. And he just looked around. And in a moment we're going to see, and it's going to be described what he saw, and he knew that he came to Jerusalem to replace that temple. He would fulfill everything that was going on in that temple. He understood his purpose, and that was to bring God's place, the place where God meets with man. And if we pick up the narrative in verse 12, we see that the next day, On the following day, verse 12, when they came from Bethany, so they woke up at Chick-fil-A, they slept in the Chick-fil-A parking lot over here on 57th Ave. And as they were leaving the parking lot, they were hungry because it wasn't open yet. And it was Sunday. (laughs) And when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. You know, I love that there. Don't you love that Mark said he was hungry? Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. He was hungry. He was hungry. And so he sees a fig tree in the distance and he wanted to go up to it to see if there was anything in it. And it says that he came up to the fig tree and he did not find anything on the fig tree. And then he did something amazing. He said something absolutely amazing in the hearing of his disciples. Look at verse 14. And he said to it, the fig tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. The cursing of the fig tree is the only destructive miracle recorded in the Gospels. Here's the question. Did Jesus curse this poor, innocent fig tree? I mean, after all, in verse 13, what does it say there? It says that, for it was not the season for figs. Do you see that in 13b? 
Was this just a fit of anger because he was hungry and his stomach was rumbling and so he just said, may no fruit ever come from you? Was it fair? Oh, yes, it was fair. You see, that's one thing we don't understand being from the United States or living right now in Miami. We don't understand about fig trees in the Middle East because you see, the fig harvest was in late summer, so it wasn't the season for figs yet. But right after the fig harvest, every fig tree would sprout little buds immediately after the harvest. And these buds would remain largely undeveloped through winter. And then these buds would grow into something called knops. In Hebrew, the word is pagim. And then sometime in the spring, which is the the time of our narrative right now, March, April time frame, the, the tree would then bring forth leaves because these pagim, these little sprouts, well, well, here's a picture of it. So there you go. There's some, some unripened figs with the leaves. And as soon as you saw the leaves on the fig tree, you knew that these pagim were big enough that you could eat them. And even though they wouldn't be as good as a ripe fig in late summer, many of the local people, when they were hungry, they would, just, they would snatch a few. Kind of like eating a, a pear that's not ripe. It's a little crunchy. It's not as juicy, but it has nutrients. And so that's what was going on here. And so Jesus comes to the tree, seeing all the leaves. He's thinking, of course, there's going to be fruit. The fruit can't be seen from a distance because it kind of blends in with the leaves. But he's thinking there's fruit. And when he gets there, there's no fruit. And so he says, may you, no one ever eat fruit from you again. And friends, the fig tree is an illustration of Israel and specifically the temple. It had all the accoutrements, it had all the outward symbols, it had the leaves, as if you could find God here, as if God meets with man here, as if there's fruit here, but when you go, no fruit, no pagim, nothing. And when Jesus cursed that fig tree, it was an illustrated parable to say, this is the judgment that will befall Jerusalem and specifically the temple, because there's no fruit And in fact, some 40 years later, that temple would be destroyed in 70 AD. In verse 15, Jesus now enters into Jerusalem on the second day. He goes immediately to the temple and he shows us how there is no fruit here. How how this temple has been rendered a fruitless, hypocritical show of religiosity with no fruit. Look what he does in 15. He entered the temple and began to drive out. That Greek word often in the New Testament is used uh, when, when talking of exercising or expelling demons. Jesus is an enforcer right now. Jesus is a bouncer. Whatever image you want to take. He is driving out, as we see here in verse 15 and 16. The money changers, he overturns the tables and the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple and he was teaching them saying, it is, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations but you have made it a den of robbers. What's going on here? Well, the next slide shows Herod's temple mount. That's about a 35 acre uh, piece of property here. The temple proper is right in the middle, and on either side, it's very hard to read, it says the Gentiles' courtyard. That's where they were selling things. That's where people, and it was said that the the population of Jerusalem at Passover would swell to ten times its normal numbers. Josephus would tell us later that in like 66 AD, that on Passover, 
255,000 lambs were slaughtered that week. So buying the lambs, buying the sacrifices, exchanging the money from Jews coming from all over the world. There was no central bank there, so they're exchanging money from every land that they're coming from. And they need to buy it with just Jewish money because it was illegal to buy it with other money. It was unclean. So all that was going on in in that courtyard of the Gentiles. Here's the problem. The temple authorities were getting rich and the merchants were ripping people off. A poor person coming from Nazareth that had to offer two pigeons as a sacrifice for whatever it is they were offering. Normally those two pigeons would call them, cost them 25 cents. On this week, Passover week, in the courtyard of the, of the Gentiles, $4. Remember Hurricane Andrew when people were selling ice for a ridiculous amount of money? Taking advantage of the situation. Ripping people off. When you came to exchange your money, some poor guy, some poor Jew who was you know, living in, in modern day Spain or Rome and he was coming there, he was poor, he was all beat up and he was going to try to exchange his money, they would rip him off. They would give him half of what his money was worth. It was outright thievery. And Jesus came and, and, and he said, this is not what is supposed to be happening here. As a matter of fact, because it was so lucrative... The temple authorities had kicked out the Gentiles, so the Gentiles couldn't even gather there. It was exclusively buy a booth, buy a booth. I got an event here, I'll charge you this. You buy a booth and, and you know, I'm going to make money, you make money, and we'll rip everybody off together. And the very purpose of the courtyard of the Gentiles, which was for Gentiles to come and watch God's people meet with God and the glory of God in the temple, was blocked out for the sake of a financial gain. See, that's why Jesus gave this scripture, quote, in verse 17. And he was teaching them, saying to them, is it not written, and now he's quoting here Isaiah 56, 7, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. And then he quotes Jeremiah 7, but you have made it a a, a den of robbers. He's quoting from this text here. These I will bring to my holy mountain, that's the temple mount, and make them joyful in my house, that's the temple, my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called what? A house of prayer for all peoples, goyim, Gentiles. Jesus wasn't cleansing the temple that day. He was judging the temple. He was shutting it down. Look, go back to the temple slide. There's no way Jesus, one man, can knock everybody out of that area. That's a huge area. Like five or six football fields long and three or four football fields wide. No, no. He, he, he targeted some guys, okay? And he, he did a number on them. Listen, listen, a week later, Jesus would give his body and his face and his beard and his back, and he would let them beat him to a pulp because that was God's will, but not today. Not today. Today, he would be doing the righteous beating because they were violating the sacred purpose of that temple. But what Jesus was doing is he was shutting it down. He was judging it because the Jewish leaders had let this happen. And this place that had leaves all over it but had no fruit, this place where you're supposed to be able to meet with God, but instead you get ripped off in some religious scam, he was shutting it down. Listen, many Jews of that time thought that Messiah would come and purge the temple of Gentiles. Instead, Jesus is cleansing the the temple for the Gentiles. He's kicking out the booths of the guys ripping people off to make room for what God intended it for, for the world to come and see. He was a man's man. I mean, some dudes went flying and there was no sin involved. 
course, whenever, anytime we do that, there's plenty of sin involved because we're not God, okay? So don't you try to do that. There's none when he did it. There was none. There's none. Remember the night before the sun was going down and Jesus walked up? He saw that the night before. He saw the booths being taken down. He knew the next day they'd be back and he looked around and he knew he was shutting it down. God's judgment came to the temple. And he knew that he would be the temple. He knew that people would then meet in him. His sacrifice, his blood, not the blood that was being shed by those pigeons and those lambs and those 255,000 lambs that would be shed on that Passover week. No, no, not that daily, monthly, yearly sacrifice. No, his once and for all sacrifice on the cross a week later would be the place where God now meets with man. And he knew that. He knew that. Jesus is the place where God meets with his people. And here, and that people includes every tribe, every tongue, every nation. That, that's the point. Danny Aiken says it this way in his commentary. God once had a physical temple located in Jerusalem. He now has a perfect temple located in heaven. That temple is Jesus, as he himself said in John 2, 18 to 22. He now has a spiritual temple, which is the church, 1 Corinthians 3, 16. He now has a personal temple scattered all around the world as as a witness that he is indeed a savior for all nations. And that temple is anyone who recognizes that they are not their own, for they have been bought with a price, the precious blood of Christ, our Passover, 1 Corinthians 5, 7. And we are those people. We are those people, church. This is the amazing part of this thing, man. This morning, we are those people. This is the temple of God. (laughs) Amazing. It leads us to point two. What do we do as his people when we meet with God? When God's people meet with God. We never, ever, ever want to move on from the gospel, but the gospel moves us on to make disciples, to bear fruit, God is serious about this. The gospel bears fruit and it sends us out to make disciples. Sinclair Ferguson says that the question of our spiritual fruitfulness is one of immense seriousness, which we ignore at our peril. We don't want to be that tree with all the beautiful leaves, the nice buildings, the beautiful music, the happening blogs, the great websites, uh, the wonderful, you know, sermons that just, you know, thrill you and are perfectly set up and, and all the great ministries and children's ministries happening and youth ministries happening and the leaves are beautiful, they're colorful. And when you push them back, there's no fruit. The withered tree of verses 20 and 21, look at it there, represent Israel in the temple. I love it. You know, Mark is pretty much Peter's eyewitness account of all this, right? (laughs) So Peter's always in here. And as we all know, Peter was probably had some Latin blood in him somewhere. Verse 20, and as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered at its roots. And Peter, there's 12 of them. Why is it always Peter? And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi! Look, as if Jesus like forgot, as if Jesus didn't know exactly what he was doing, as if Jesus wasn't intentional on going on that route again, having cursed it the day before, he wanted them to see that it had withered from the roots up. Listen, withered from the roots up is a miracle. 
You know, you can't say, oh, you know, it had blight. Yeah, blight doesn't strike in 18 hours. It withered from the root up because Jesus cursed it. Jesus cursed it. Jesus cursed it. That temple would be destroyed in 70 AD. But the true temple lives forever. Jesus Christ, our great high priest, interceding for us. We sang about that a lot this morning. The temple. (laughs) And as he lives in us by the spirit, we become the temple. And as we gather together as the church, we are the temple. Until Christ returns, gives us a new heavens and a new earth. So what do God's people do when they meet with God? Well, here we go. Verse 22. B. They believe. Look at verse 22. And Jesus answered them. So after, after Peter says the obvious, hey, the tree withered. Peter says, yep. Have faith in God. Have faith in God. When God's people meet with God, they believe. If you are having trouble believing this morning, then my question is, are you meeting with God on a regular basis? It's not a, I'm meeting with God to have a relationship with him. I have a relationship with him. So I'm meeting with him. I'm breaking open the word of God. I'm praying. I'm singing. I'm coming to church. I'm coming to community group. I'm meeting with people in accountability during the week. I'm texting people and say, how you doing? We're meeting with God. And we believe. Jesus said, have faith in God. And we worship when we meet with God. We worship. Because Jesus is God. He's the one who makes it possible to meet with God. He's the one that took away the sin that separated us from God. He took the judgment that we deserve from God the Father, that we might receive the blessing that he deserves. And then verse 23 and 24. The second thing that God's people do when they meet with God is they pray. Now, actually, verse 23 kind of connects believe and pray. Because, see, Jesus uses the most radical extreme case you can think of. Something that's impossible. Look at verse 23. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that he says what, what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer. So that mountain is connecting believe. Because listen, What he's talking about here is people who meet with God are not moved by the impossibilities of this world. We are regularly confronted with things that are impossible, impossible relationships, impossible tasks. How do we see revival come to South Florida? How do we make disciples, Lord? How do we move someone's heart to want to give up everything to follow Jesus and serve the church? How, how, how? Lord, how do I change? How do I stop doing whatever it is you're doing you want to stop doing? How do I start doing the very thing I know I should do, but I can't? How do I reconcile that broken relationship at home? How do I provide for my family? These are the mountains. They're impossible to move. But as we learned from Jesus earlier, what is impossible by man is possible with God. When Peter said, who can be saved if this rich guy can't get saved? And he said, what's impossible with man, possible by God. Those who meet with God realize that they quickly come to the limit of what they can do. And they believe God. And belief in God is expressed in prayer. 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 
Prayer is, is the outward manifestation of that inward faith of those who have met with God and seen God's face and understand God's sovereign power. And they say, Lord, Lord, we pray. Listen, and this is how we pray. We don't pray, Lord, just give me, give me, give me. <laughs> no, we pray as Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father, you who are in heaven, hallowed, holy be your name. Your will be done. Your kingdom come. When God's people meet with God, their prayers are no longer just what they want, but they rejoice just as much in a no as with a yes. They rejoice just as much with a closed door as with an open door because God knows best. This this passage has been misused so often as sort of like a credit card to just swipe every time you want to get something from God. It's not. It's a kingdom message of Jesus being Lord and trusting him. And when the good days come and when the bad days come and when the prayers I've been praying for 18 and a half years for something to happen don't happen, you say, good, I know you're God. I love you. I believe you. I'm looking at you. I believe. Have faith in God. I pray. And I rejoice. I don't stop praying. I pray audacious prayers. Andrew Murray once said, we have a God who delights in impossibilities. I love praying those prayers. I can't do this, Lord. I'm praying for it, if it be your will. He loves those prayers. That's what God's people do when they meet with God. And finally, they forgive. Listen, because we know that we could never, ever earn audience with God, because I know that I've offended God so much that I deserve his righteous wrath, that the only way I can stand and meet with God is if someone took that offense, someone took that sin, someone took that wrath, and someone forgave me when I didn't deserve it, and that someone is Jesus, then when I stand praying, I forgive. I forgive. I forgive. You know, as I was reading this and, and just moved, particularly by Danny Aiken's commentary, but others as well, uh, there were just some questions that, that Aiken asked at the end of the, the chapter that he was commentating on here. And he, he just asked this, are you a barren fig tree? Am I? Are our churches? He goes on to say, let me be specific. Can you forgive those you once hated and who have wronged you? And can you get the gospel to them? Our country's in a crisis right now. Race is pitted against race, and we're all talking right by each other. Socioeconomic strata is pitted against socioeconomic strata. We Christians have the light of the gospel. Only we have that. We know we've been forgiven, and we're to shine that light. Oh, may there be fruit underneath these leaves, because the world needs it. The world's hungry and tired and thirsty. Maybe you are this morning. Jesus has the fruit to satisfy that thirst. It's forgiveness when you don't deserve it. It's mercy when you deserve judgment. Oh, we want to be the tree with fruit. Well, we pay the price necessary that all the nations might hear of King Jesus. And then he quotes a missionary named C.T. Studd who said the following. Some wish to live within the sound of a chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. Some wish to live within the sound of a chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. Now that's a great place to plant a temple, isn't it? Nothing against South Florida. I love South Florida. I'm a Miami guy. I, I, hope, I, I hope 
the Lord allows me to die here and get buried here, pointing me to, to the Caribbean. But Miami is a place of, yeah. So what? Let's go, man. Let's run. Let's go run to it in the name of Jesus, by the power of the gospel, the Holy Spirit empowering us because we've met with God. And he goes out and he says, now you go meet with others and introduce them. And you tell them the forgiveness that you've experienced. And you live it. You live it. You live it. When we meet with God in Christ Jesus, our lives are changed and we are transformed corporately into the image of Christ. Here's the appeal. Jesus came to prepare the one and only place where God meets with his people. Let us enter that place by the blood of Jesus and meet with our God. Jesus is the temple and he transforms us into the temple of God individually and corporately as the church, Christ's body on earth, representing Christ to a watching world. And as Christ intercedes, we sang a lot about Jesus interceding. If you were paying attention to the worship songs, we sang a lot about interceding. As Christ intercedes for us, we intercede for others, extending to them the forgiveness we've received in Christ. So let us experience that transformation that God brings to our lives as we meet with him daily as individuals and weekly, corporately as a church. Are you meeting with God today in Christ? Let us pray. Worship team, would you please join me in front? Lord, thank you for for meeting with us. I I don't know why. You You are the supreme creator all-sufficient one. You don't need us. I would be surprised if, if... I'd be surprised if, like, the mayor of Miami wanted to meet with me. Much less someone with more power, perhaps the leader of a powerful country. But what's amazing is that you, God Almighty, would want to meet with us. We are nothing. We don't deserve it. You don't need us. But you then made a way. You gave yourself. You gave your son to die that we, we would be able to meet with you. Oh, my. What amazing grace. So, Lord, we pray right now if there are some in this auditorium who do not know you, have resisted you, perhaps mocked you, Um, been afraid of you, Lord, right now, would you reveal to them that Jesus took the wrath that they deserve, the guilt that they probably legitimately feel was thrown on Jesus and they would repent and believe and cry out, Jesus, save me, son of God, son of David, have mercy on me. And that you would regenerate them and, and give them faith and repentance and that they would cry out. And Lord, for the bulk of us here this morning, we just want to say, we, we, we want to meet with you. Lord, our souls are pushed down at times by problems and situations and people and our own idols within. And we just, Lord, we just, we want to, we're hungry and thirsty and weary and we want to taste that fruit. Not only bear it, obviously, but but taste it. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Lord, help us to, to taste that now as we sing to you together in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing, Oh My Soul. Arise. Let's make this a prayer. Listen, when you sing this, you're singing it to God, but I can hear you, and you're singing it to me too. Because when my soul is pushed down, when I want to quit, you are saying, No, no, arise, my soul. The psalmist would say this to himself Why so downcast, oh, my soul? Put your hope in God. Let's sing this as a prayer.